Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host with me again, of course, is Matthew. I am glad you're here again. Is it hot enough for you? <laughs> it's really hot. It is bacon hot. Thank you for turning this air conditioning on before we came in. The... Yeah, the uh, studio tends to get really hot because we have it all uh, soundproofed and all that kind of thing. And when we are in here with our bodies as well, it tends to get very, very violently hot. Yep. Yeah, so off we go. This is this is the case that I've kind of wanted to cover ever since I was a kid. Mm. My dad was reading the book when I was just a wee puckster on the beach, and I saw this really spooky house with the eyes kind of <laughs> windows, and I thought, I want to learn about that. So when dad put the book down in the family room, I picked it up and I read it. Is that where it all started, Mike? That's kind of where it all started yeah. as far as my interest in the paranormal and that kind of thing. Mike's prequel. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Origin story. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense. Some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present. Nor are we journalists. <laughs> We're two ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Can't get enough of that dark poutine. Oh yeah, that one. Sugar bear. On the night of November 13, 1974, in the sleepy community of Amityville, on the coast of Long Island, New York, a 23-year-old man named Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. came running into a local bar. He was distraught and claiming his whole family, his mother and father and four siblings, had been murdered in their home, a large Dutch colonial house located at 112 Ocean Avenue. It was later determined it was Butch himself who'd annihilated his family. A year later, Butch was convicted on six counts of second-degree murder and received an equal number of sentences of 25 years to life in prison for slaughtering his family as they slept. A month after Butch DeFeo's conviction, 
The Lutz family, Kathy, George, and their three kids moved into the property having purchased it for a steal at $80,000. After only 28 days in the house, the Lutz family fled. They claimed they'd been chased out by relentless psychic torture inflicted on them by some unseen presence, they thought demonic, who'd made life in the house impossible. A 1977 book on the case by author Jay Anson titled The Amityville Horror and subsequent 1979 film introduced the story to an international audience and has become one of the most well-known, most covered, and at the same time most controversial tales of haunting and demonic possession in history. This is Dark Poutine episode 176, Away Game, The DeFeo Family Murders, Horror in Amityville. Another house, much older, had originally stood on the spot where the iconic house, the star of this story, is located. That house, with a history of its own, was moved in 1924 to make way for the home that now sits at what was 112 Ocean Avenue. It was originally constructed by Catherine and John Moynihan, complete with the two famous pie-slice windows on the side of the home on the third floor that looked like creepy eyes when lit from within. The Moynihans raised their four children in the home and lived there until their deaths. The home was sold by the Moynihan's daughter, Eline, in 1960 for $35,000. The couple who bought it, Mary and John Riley, only lived there for five years until their separation and divorce. On June 28, 1965, Ronald DeFeo Sr., a successful car salesman, and his wife Louise purchased the home and moved into the grand estate with their growing family. As is tradition with many large homes in affluent neighborhoods, Big Ronnie hung a sign out front of the home just off the driveway, dubbing the property, High Hopes. The DeFeo's oldest, Ronald Jr., later later nicknamed Butch, was born on September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. Ronald Sr. was the star salesman at his father-in-law's Buick dealership with a larger-than-life personality. Big Ronnie provided a comfortable living for their family, and they were proud to have bought this big home. The DeFeo spaced out the births of their children, having them years apart from one another. Don DeFeo was five years younger than Butch, Allison was five years younger than Don, Mark was born a year after Allison, and the youngest, John Matthew, was born in 1965, the year the family moved into 112 Ocean Avenue. So, although the house was large, it was full of family energy. Big Ronnie was loud, and said to have been quick-tempered and often violently beat Louise and the kids. Ronald Jr. was often the target of Big Ronnie's tirades and felt unable to live up to his father's high hopes for his firstborn. Butch was overweight as well, so school was no better. His classmates were relentless in teasing him about the few extra pounds he carried throughout his childhood, and Big Ronnie belittled Butch for not standing up for himself when the other kids taunted him. Ronnie expected better of his eldest son and namesake. Butch began to believe he couldn't do anything right. He was not a happy guy, and things got worse between he and his dad as he grew up. As Butch got older and grew taller, he began to shed the extra pounds and became a large and powerful man. He started to stand up for himself both at school and at home, and loved to throw his weight around. But Big Ronnie would have none of it. He was the alpha male, after all. The frequent arguments, often over the most benign disagreement, escalated into violent punch-ups, terrifying Louise and the other kids as father and son fought to dominate each other. Big Ronnie and Louise were concerned for Butch's sanity. 
Their son didn't seem to be in touch with reality a lot of the time. His anger seemed way over the top, even for the environment. They began sending Ronald Jr. to a psychiatrist to deal with his outbursts. Butch, though, did not gel with the psychiatrist and was confrontational with him. Butch denied he had any problem at all. He claimed Big Ronnie's mental, emotional, and physical abuse of the entire family was the real issue. It was true. Big Ronnie was volatile and inconsistent. He was loving hugs one minute, and in the next he was punching Butch bloody after throwing him against a wall. At Butch's trial later on, reports of Big Ronnie's domestic violence were confirmed by family friends. One told the court that on one occasion, Big Ronnie had punched his wife so hard in the face that Louise had been sent tumbling down a flight of stairs. The smaller kids were not spared either. One anecdote told by a family member included Big Ronnie taking young Allison by the hair and dragging the girl up the stairs violently. Unable to see his part in the issues in the household, Big Ronnie continued to vacillate between love and violence to rein in Butch's bad behavior. Big Ronnie decided that his doctors were not helping his son. Throwing money at Butch was the answer. Even going so far as to buy him a $14,000 speedboat, which he kept in the boat slip on the property. Butch's sullen attitude did not improve, and perhaps now feeling rewarded for his bad behavior, his outbursts escalated both inside and outside the DeFeo home. Butch started using heroin and LSD by 17 and was subsequently expelled from high school for violent incidents there. Instead of sending Butch to school somewhere else, he was given a decent-paying job assisting mechanics at his grandfather's Buick dealership. Butch got paid whether he showed up or not, and no one bothered to track his performance. It was straight-up nepotism. All the money that Butch got from his job went into fixing up his car, supporting his party lifestyle with as much booze and drugs as he could manage, but most concerning, in hindsight, was Butch's fascination for firearms, which he started collecting. Butch even attempted to shoot Big Ronnie at one point. The incident came as Butch was witness to yet another beating heaped on his mom, Louise, by Big Ronnie. Butch aimed his shotgun at his father and pulled the trigger. The gun malfunctioned and did not fire, but it was clear that Butch was willing to kill. Butch was also inconsistent, just like Big Ronnie, threatening a friend with a rifle and then only hours later behaving as though it had not happened. Butch was a big problem, a powder keg, and his fuse had already been lit. Butch's growing appetites were not satisfied by the cash he was earning from the job that he wasn't showing up for. He knew his family had lots more, and he felt he was entitled to it and resented not getting every penny he felt he was owed just for being on the planet. Butch started looking for ways to get more out of his family and the dealership. In 1974, only weeks before the murders that would make him so infamous, Butch had an idea. He was often tasked with taking large deposits, often more than $20,000 in checks and a couple thousand dollars in cash per transaction to a local bank. Butch convinced a friend to, quote, rob him. Butch and another accomplice went off to the bank one afternoon with the money. Coming back two hours later saying they'd been held up at gunpoint at a red light by a bandit who'd followed them from the dealership. Butch's story didn't add up. Why'd he been gone so long if the robbery had occurred right after they'd left the dealership? Butch became defensive with the police officers questioning him. Seeing they were getting nowhere with the stubborn 23-year-old, police decided that they'd give him time to calm down and confront him later, after more investigation. Butch was well known to the cops by this time and was already on probation for previous bad behavior. From a CrimeLibrary.com article on the DeFeo murders, quote, On the Friday before the murders, Butch, 
had been asked by the police to examine some mugshots and the possibility that he might be able to finger the thief. He initially agreed, but pulled out at the last minute. When Ronald Sr. heard of this, he confronted his son at work, demanding to know why he wouldn't cooperate with police. You've got the devil on your back, his father screamed at his son. Butch didn't hesitate. You fat prick, I'll kill you. He then ran to his car and sped off. This fight had not come to blows, but the final confrontation was imminent. End quote. At around 3.40 in the morning, on November 13, 1974, a barmaid driving home from her late-night shift noted that all the lights were on in the big house at 112 Ocean Avenue. She thought it odd, as the other houses in the neighborhood were in darkness. Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. showed up for work that morning at 7 a.m. When Big Ronnie didn't turn up at his usual time, Butch claimed he had no idea where his dad was and did not seem at all concerned. At around 11, having had enough of work, Butch called his girlfriend Mindy and left, spending the rest of the day hanging out with her briefly at a mall, then visiting a few friends, buying heroin, and drinking at Henry's Bar just down the street from the infamous house. He left the bar at around 6.20 p.m., deciding he should go check on his family. It was around 6.30 p.m., only 10 minutes later, when Butch DeFeo returned to Henry's again, screaming, You gotta help me. I think my mother and father are shot. Gathering up a few brave souls to go investigate, they hopped in the car with Butch and returned to 112 Ocean Avenue and entered the family home. Butch stayed outside, sobbing and refusing to enter as his buddies went inside to investigate. In the master bedroom, they found a horrific scene. There in their bed lay the bodies of Ronald Joseph DeFeo Sr., 43, and his wife, Louise DeFeo, 42. Both were laying on their stomachs. Louise was under the covers, and Big Ronnie, clad only in boxer shorts, had a bloody bullet hole in the middle of his back. One of the men who'd come with Butch to investigate, Joey Yeswit, raced downstairs and, finding a phone in the kitchen, called 911. From the 911 call transcript, quote, Operator, this is Suffolk County Police. May I help you? Yeswit. We have a shooting here. Uh, DeFeo. Yeswit gives his name and details about the location of the house. The operator asks again what the problem is. Yeswit's frustrated. Yeswit. It's a shooting. Operator. There's a shooting? Anybody hurt? Yeswit. Huh? Operator. Anybody hurt? Yeswit. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, everyone, everybody's dead. Operator, what do you mean everybody's dead? Yeswit, I don't know what happened. Kid come running into the bar. He says everybody in the family was killed and we came down here. End quote. Police were dispatched and they arrived at 6.40 p.m. only five minutes after Yeswit had placed the 911 call. Officer Kenneth Graguski was the first cop on the scene. From CrimeLibrary.com as Officer Graguski arrived, he found a group of men gathered on the DeFeo's front lawn. Butch was among them, sobbing uncontrollably. My mother and father are dead, 
he said as Graguski approached the group. The village of Amityville patrolman entered the house and immediately went upstairs. He first discovered the bodies of Ronald and Louise, as well as those of John and Mark DeFeo. He returned downstairs to phone village headquarters from the kitchen. Ronald was seated at the kitchen table, still crying. As he listened to Graguski's description, he alerted the officer to the fact that he also had two sisters. Graguski put the receiver down and hurried back upstairs. By this time, another village patrolman had arrived, Officer Edwin Tyndall. The two of them found Don and Allison's room together. It would take a forensics investigator to locate where the girls had been shot and what kind of gun had killed them. There was too much blood for the officers to even begin to guess. As well as Louise and Big Ronnie, the rest of the DeFeo children were dead. They were Don, 18, Allison, 13, and the two youngest sons, Mark, 11, and John Matthew, only seven years old. All had apparently been shot to death in their beds. The house was secured and Butch was removed from the scene to be questioned. Butch claimed initially that it must have been a mob hit sometime earlier in the day. He said he'd gone to sleep at around 2 a.m. after watching a movie on TV and that when he'd awakened, got ready for work and left, everyone was sleeping soundly. Butch was still being interviewed when the family's bodies were removed from the house just after midnight the next morning as a group of neighborhood looky-loos ogled the scene. They were brought there by the massive lights from the emergency and news vehicles now gathered in front of the big house. At 2.30 a.m., the questioning session ended with Ronnie still blaming an Italian hitman. At the same time, back at the DeFeo house, Detective John Shrivel found boxes for a 22 Marlin rifle and a Marlin .35 rifle in Butch DeFeo's room. Shrivel bagged the boxes and took them back to the homicide office. As Butch slept on a cot in the back room of the homicide offices, forensics determined that a .35 Marlin rifle was the most likely murder weapon. But it was missing, and the forensics were not adding up. The DeFeos had been dead much longer than Butch's timeline indicated. When Butch was awakened at just before 9 a.m., police were now treating him much differently. Butch DeFeo, the only remaining son of Louise and Big Ronnie, was now the prime suspect in their murders, and those of his brothers and sisters. From CrimeLibrary.com, Butch, it's incredible, said one investigator. It's almost unbelievable. Butch, we know we have a 35 caliber gun box from your room. Every one of the victims has been shot with a 35 caliber. And you've seen the whole thing. There has to be more to it. It's your gun that was used. End quote. Butch stuck to his story for a little while longer, repeating his hitman theory. But as more evidence came in, the seasoned cops began to hammer Butch to fail with the facts. Eventually, he cracked. One detective told Butch that he knew the hitman story was a lie, and Butch, knowing he was caught, finally confessed. Quote, it all started so fast. He said, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. End quote. Butch confessed that just after 3 a.m., he'd gotten up, retrieved his 35 caliber rifle from the closet in his room, and over the next 15 minutes had murdered his entire family as the dog barked furiously, tied up in the backyard. Butch had started with his parents, shooting his father twice in the back. Both shots would have been fatal. Louise, also laying prone, had been awakened by the sound of the two shots Butch had used to dispatch Big Ronnie. But Butch quickly shot her fatally through the back before she could roll over to see what was going on. 
Somehow, the children, it seemed, had not heard the shots that had killed their parents. The next to die were Butch's brothers, John and Mark, both shot in the back as they lay sleeping in their beds in the room they shared. Allison and Dawn were next. Allison was shot in the face as she began to awaken. Dawn, Butch's eldest sibling, was the last to die, also shot in the head. From CrimeLibrary.com, quote, Aware that he had completed the task he had set out to do, he now turned his attention to cleaning himself up and establishing an alibi to throw the inevitable police investigation off the trail. Butch calmly showered, trimmed his beard, and dressed in his jeans and work boots. He then collected his bloodied clothing and the rifle, wrapped them up in a pillowcase, and headed out to his car. Butch tossed the rifle into a canal behind an unoccupied home nearby. It was found by a dive team two days after the killings, right where Butch had said it would be. He disposed of the pillowcase on his way to work in Brooklyn, tossing it into a storm drain. Butch was charged with six counts of murder. His motive, investigators believed, was pure greed. That Butch was after a $200,000 insurance payout and the rest of a lucrative inheritance, including the house. Almost a year later, Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. was convicted of annihilating his family and sentenced to six life terms. He died in March of 2021 after being treated for an undisclosed illness at the Albany Medical Center. Over the years, he'd attempted to appeal his convictions with numerous wild claims, including that naming his sister Dawn as the real killer of his family. She'd been found with powder burns on one arm, which DeFeo's defense team attempted to say indicated that she'd fired a weapon. DeFeo claimed he'd killed Dawn in self-defense. Of course, this was nonsense. But the story does not end here. Not even close. In a way, this was just the beginning. And we'll take a break right here. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. What are your thoughts so far, Matthew? We've just covered the DeFeo family murders and the aftermath. Right. And I know where we're going with the rest of the story. Right. Um, everyone listening is probably as much of a true, true crime junkie as I am. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how many times have we seen this cocktail? Domestic abuse, schoolyard bullying, underlying mental health issues, hard drug abuse, narcissism, history of criminal activity fascination with guns, utter death threats, right? It all adds up, unfortunately, to a truly broken person killing his entire family. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, Mike, how he, 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 you only mentioned like a few of the stories he gave. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had so many, right? Like, right. so mafia, my sister, my mom, blah, 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 blah. Yep. this other person, that other person. And he ended with, oh, Oh, well, actually, no, it wasn't any of that. I, I was insane and it was the devil telling me. Right. And that's what everyone glommed onto and created the whole the, yep. ho- the whole business out of it. The mythology <laughs> yeah. and the business, yeah. Yeah. So what do you make of uh, the fact that nobody woke up in the household and it didn't <laughs> seem to hear the gunshots? A lot has been made over the years oh, about that. Yeah. I've, I've read a few things yeah. and I think so have you. So yeah. 
Can you talk to me about that? Uh, it, everyone like holds on to this like it, it, it's some indicator of the paranormal, right? Mm -hmm. But I went back to uh, November 17th, 1974, New York Times article. Mm -hmm. um, Ronald DeFeo Jr., the 23-year-old auto mechanic who is accused of murdering his parents and four brothers and sisters, has reportedly told police that he administered heavy doses of barbiturates to his family on the night they were killed. According to law enforcement, the sleep-inducing drugs were added to the family dinner that was being prepared on last Tuesday night at the DeFeo home. But interestingly, I have I read that article too. Yeah. I read another one where they said it might have been that the, the family was drugged. There is no mention of that any time afterward. There's no mention of any toxicology reports, all those. Mm. I'm not saying that they didn't exist, yeah. but there's just no mention of them anywhere. Well, it was the 70s, yeah. right? We have to remember this 1974. I was like four years old. And um, it also doesn't fit the narrative of the paranormal story, does it? No. And I'm also trying to picture a four-year-old Matthew. Did you have the beard then? <laughs> no, I didn't have the beard. I was a cute kid. I had blonde hair. As mentioned before, it was a month after Butch DeFeo's conviction that the house at 112 Ocean Avenue changed hands again. George and Kathy Lutz moved in with their kids, Daniel, 9, Christopher, 7, and Missy, 5, on December 19, 1975, along with their dog, a crossbreed Malamute Labrador named Harry. According to AmityvilleFiles.com, quote, We looked at about 50 homes over the months that we decided to combine the households says George in a 2005 interview. When she, the realtor, showed it to us, she said, I don't know if I should tell you now or after you've seen the house, but this was the house that the DeFeo murders took place in. We kind of looked at each other like we weren't sure what she was talking about, and then she reminded us about Ronald DeFeo having killed his whole family. It had been in the newspapers about a year before. Even though George had grown up a Methodist and Kathleen was a non-practicing Catholic, they had concerns about what energy the house might possess, having been the site of the cold-blooded slaying of the DeFeos. A friend suggested they have a Catholic priest come by and bless the place. The blessing took place in the house on the day before moving day. In Jay Anson's book, The Amityville Horror, quote, The priest removed his clerical articles from the car, put on his stole, took the holy water, and entered the house to begin his ritual of blessing. When he flicked the first holy water and uttered the words that accompany the gesture, Father Mancuso, a pseudonym, heard a masculine voice say with terrible clarity, Get out! The priest continued his blessing and did not speak to George or Kathy about what he'd heard before he left. That would be later. During the first night sleeping in his new home, at 3.15 a.m. in what he claimed would become a nightly routine during his time there, George Lutz was awakened by what sounded like a loud knocking sound or doors slamming. Lutz went downstairs thinking the sound was coming from there but found nothing. He claimed that his nightly awakenings also came with an obsessive need to go out and check the boathouse. George said he'd heard other sounds. One was like a radio not quite tuned to a station that seemed to be featuring a German Oompa band revving up to play but not quite getting there. No one but George reported hearing the sounds, and the family dog, George claimed, slept through every occurrence. Kathy began having nightmares every night, featuring graphic scenes of Butch DeFeo stalking from room to room and shooting his family in the order in which he'd committed the crimes. To ward off evil, Kathy put up a 12-inch crucifix in the family room. It would suddenly flip itself upside down, 
a sign of satanic forces at work. Often the movement of the crucifix would be accompanied by the smell of rotten eggs. The smell of sulfur is also said to be an indication of demonic presence. A downstairs fireplace was seen by both George and Kathy at different times to have lit itself. A satanic-looking face emerged in the soot in the fireplace as it blazed and then stopped as suddenly as it had started. As with many hauntings, there were unexplained cold spots throughout the house. There were also strange smells that came out of nowhere. Some were pleasant, like a lady's perfume, while others were not so nice, as though someone had viciously farted or taken a massive, mysterious dump behind the furniture. Slime was said to have intermittently dripped from the walls and out of keyholes. Locks on windows and doors were damaged, and windows suddenly cracked, seemingly for no reason. One of the most famous parts of the house, later dubbed the Red Room due to its crimson-painted walls, was discovered by George Lutz in the basement of the house. There, underneath the stairs, behind some shelving, was a tiny room approximately four by five feet. The dark energy and horrendous smell emanating from the room was so malevolent that Harry, the dog, refused to go near it. In one upstairs room, set up as Kathy's sewing room, flies would appear out of nowhere. In winter, George and Kathy would swat and kill the little beasties, and on several occasions, they thought they'd dispatch them all, only to return hours later to more flies. On Christmas Eve, 1975, the priest who had blessed the house called George Lutz. The thought of the voice he'd heard while blessing the house was driving him to distraction. The priest advised George to have he and his family avoid the second-floor room where he'd heard the mysterious voice. This was the former bedroom of Mark and John Matthew DeFeo. This had become Kathy's sewing room and the one in which they'd been having the fly problem. The priest told Lutz that after leaving the house, he'd developed a high fever and blisters had risen up on both sides of his hands, similar to stigmata. Kathy, working alone in the kitchen, would feel hands embracing her in a gentle way from behind. She would turn around thinking it was George, only to find that nothing was there and the sensation had vanished. The whole family started acting strangely. The kids argued more often, as did George and Kathy. Oddly, the whole family, kids included, started sleeping on their stomachs like the poses the DeFeo family had taken on the night of their slayings. George seemed to be the most affected by the energy in the house. From AmityvilleFiles.com, quote, I just didn't want to leave the house, George says. We would invite people over instead of going to see them. There came to a point when we would invite people over to see whether we were crazy or not, because when our friends sat in the kitchen, they could hear people walking around upstairs after the kids had been put to bed. We'd all go up and find the kids fast asleep. There was no way it was the kids. And when your friends confirm that for you, you almost want to break down and say out loud, I'm not crazy, they hear too. That is such an emotional moment when someone else confirms for you what you're hearing and that it's not just you hearing it. It's not your imagination. End quote. The Lutz children were not spared their own bizarre happenings. Missy, the youngest daughter, would hear a woman singing in her room. When Missy left the room, the singing would stop. When she re-entered, the singing would start up again, exactly where it had left off. The five-year-old said it was a woman who she called Jody. Jody, she said, had a pig-like face with demonic red glowing eyes. Missy said that Jody climbed into her bedroom through the window when she wanted to talk. Kathy discounted the story of Jody as the musings of a five-year-old with an imaginary friend. But one night, when Kathy noticed a draft and came in to close the window in Missy's room, she was startled by a demonic pig face with glowing red eyes reflected in the glass seemingly behind her. She turned. Again, there was nothing there. 
The Lutzes also claimed that they'd seen cloven footprints like a two-legged pig's left in the snow outside the home. On January 14, 1976, after a second attempt at having the house blessed had no effect on what they had come to believe were dark entities in their home, Kathy and George picked up the kids and the dog and fled to Kathy's mother's house, leaving all their possessions behind, later sending movers to pick up their things. The movers had no odd experiences. The Lutzes had been in the home for only 28 days and had not even made their first mortgage payment. From an article by Colin Dickey on NewRepublic.com, quote, According to author Jay Anson, while George and Kathleen Lutz were trying to find out why their new home was so haunted, a member of the Amityville Historical Society revealed to them that the site of their home had once been used by the Shinnecock Indians as an enclosure for the sick, mad, and dying. These unfortunates were penned up until they died of exposure. Anson further claimed that the Shinnecock did not use this tract as a consecrated burial mound because they believed it to be infested with demons. But when paranormal researcher Hans Holzer and psychic medium Ethel Johnson Myers investigated the Amityville house, Johnson Myers channeled the spirit of a Shinnecock Indian chief who told her that the house stood on an ancient Indian burial ground. None of this is held up under any kind of scrutiny. The Shinnecock lived some 50 miles from Amityville, and according to writer Rick Osuna, who spent years unearthing the facts about Amityville, the nearest human remains that have been found to date are over a mile from the house. Nor would the Shinnecock or any other native people have treated their sick and dying in such a callous and brutal mm. fashion. This stuff always makes me cringe, right? It, mm. It's the, the, I can't stand that, the old Indian burial ground trope, yeah. right? It's totally, in my mind, totally disrespectful. I think it even stems from um, us white folks having guilt over how we treated First Nations people in the first place and somehow feel like we deserve to be haunted by it, which yeah. maybe we do. But flip side of that is that at worst, it's a perpetuation of this view as, as the them and the enemy and some evil scourge that has to be removed. Racism. Right. And, you know, it's sort of, the, so it's this a creation of cowboys and Indians bullshit in the afterlife. Just leave them alone. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, you know, just, I think it's time that that trope just disappear. Yeah. In February of 1976, famous demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren were two of a small group of paranormal researchers given access to the house to try and determine what, if anything, had gone on in the Lutz's house. You might recognize the Warrens from the Conjuring movies. Regarding the Red Room in the basement, Ed Warren had things to say about that had explained his findings to a reporter named Jeff Belanger. Here's a bit of that article. Quote, Anxious to see for himself whether or not the phenomenon was real, Ed, who normally experiences little clairvoyant feelings at all, went to the cellar. The cellar is typically where evil spirits spend their days, and Ed, therefore, felt that it would be the best place for him to start. Despite his unusual immunity from witnessing phenomena, Ed saw shadows along with thousands of pinpoints of light, these shadows attempted to push him to the ground. Ed used religious resistance and commanded the evil spirits to leave. He immediately got the sensation of something attempting to lift him off the ground, and he knew then that this was truly a house of evil. Although he knew that this was a serious case, he had no idea how severe it really was. He has never been so seriously affected in any case before or after, end quote. From the epilogue of Jay Anson's The Amityville Horror, Quote, Clairvoyant Lorraine Warren finally voiced her own opinion. She said, 
Whatever is here, in my estimation, is most definitely of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who had once walked the earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth, end quote. Although called a hoaxer by many, even his own attorney who claimed he and Kathy and George had cooked up the tale over a bottle one night, George Lutz was adamant to the end of his life that the events described in Jay Anson's book were largely accurate from the FAQ page on George Lutz's site, AmityvilleHorror.com. Let's answer skeptics at the top of the page. The question, I heard that the Amityville horror was a hoax. Answer, yeah, I heard that too. End quote. George Lutz died in 2006. His death was announced on his website, which was, of course, AmityvilleHorror.com. The announcement read in part, quote, With great sadness, I must announce the passing of my dear friend George Lee Lutz. Mr. Lutz passed away suddenly on the afternoon of May 8, 2006, one of Lee's greatest passions was feeding the homeless, end quote. I have a healthy skepticism about hauntings and ghost stories. I really want to believe there's something to it, but have never seen any definitive or convincing proof myself. However, while doing research for this, I found my computer behaving badly, websites that I normally use for research would crash unexpectedly or intermittently become unreachable. It was as though something did not want me looking into this story. It's probably just coincidence, right? To help me understand the possibility of residual psychic energy left over after a violent event, I sought out my friend Morgan Knudsen, speaker, author, producer, spiritual teacher, and TV host of the shows Haunted Hospitals and Paranormal 911. I spoke with Morgan for episode 66 of Dark Poutine, The Great Amherst Mystery, the story of one of Canada's most famous historical hauntings. Morgan kindly agreed to a last-minute phone interview to help with this case as well. A portion of our conversation follows here. Is it possible that there's residual energy left over after there are such violent events in a house? Sorry, I think where we can where we can take this is to turn around and talk about um, not only the fact that, yeah, like emotionally impactful events does impact the environment, um, but also the fact that that those that memory cells whenever people are interacting with environments and things and objects and things like that they get left behind and we're now beginning to understand with the with the introduction of of quantum physics and into parapsychology that those imprints do get left there okay um and it through quantum entanglement believe it or not Mm. and the breakthrough that's recent um but yeah like this stuff gets stuck there and that's one of the reasons why people you know mediums and things like that can walk into a space and pick up on imagery mm. and stuff is that it actually has to do with the more impactful the event then the easier it is for us to pick up on these memory cells in the same way that like if you were to get a heart transplant and you start you know imitating the donor mm-hmm. um which happens all the time it's the same same phenomenon they had a they had a catholic priest come and bless the house and uh he was told to get out that the minute that he started his ritual his blessing ritual something told him to get out um and he didn't tell the lutz family that prior to uh leaving that day which is no, interesting he didn't. yeah which is really interesting um uh, but uh if a catholic priest coming to the house and blessing it isn't going to do any good like in this case, what will, what does uh, cleanse this kind of place? 
Well, ultimately, it really comes down to what people are, what frequency people are, are emoting on, essentially. And what I mean by that is that you've got people who are resonating with that energy, um, you know, in on an emotional level. You you tend to get what what you're putting out. So when people are having trouble with in, in any home. Uh, with a negative entity or negative energy like that kind of thing you have to be resonating on it within some part of your being in order to be in the receptive space to to receive it mm -hmm. and one of the things that i've noticed just over the years has, has been that where if if you've got somebody who is sort of hanging out in that that level of of emotional discord they're the ones that are going to run into trouble with this stuff where if you've got somebody who's kind of bipping along and doing okay um, and, you know, having a pretty good life and knows how to deal with stress and, and heals their stuff, then you end up with somebody who's, who's completely off the radar of this kind of activity. So you look at family like the Lutz family and, you know, George Lutz was, was, you know, very heavy into things like the occult and, and whatnot. Um, and you know they had a lot of stuff going on in in their life and their experience um you know it would make sense that if you've got someone who is who is steeped there that they're more likely to end up in the receptive space than a, you know a family that's not so one of the big controversies of course is the fact that you know once they left people were saying all oh, the the, the activity has gone the activity has gone but ultimately that happens all the time so you know as long as you get people off of that emotional frequency that activity is going to disappear but there has to be an awareness of you know what i have a role in this too and unless i move my position i'm going to continue to get this over and over and over again so ultimately in a situation like this this is what you're going to want you need to move people out of that emotional headspace and into uh into a different one where they're pursuing their passions doing what they love to do and then they're going to watch the rest of that energy just fall away ultimately a blessing or anything like that is only going to work if it helps to get those people up that emotional scale if it doesn't and it doesn't stick and they're not doing the emotional work behind it it's going to do nothing okay that that really makes a lot of sense yeah. to me so it's a it's more about uh a person being able to if if they're in a bad space they're more likely to tune in to the bad things that have happened in a space yeah, exactly. And when we've when you've got a situation, especially that is is you know as as severe as that, like you 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 have to wonder what was going on in their experience that was putting them on that level and that that frequency where they were bringing us into their experience. And it's not about blame, and it's not about fault. It's just because people people usually aren't aware, and it gets really difficult when you move into a house like this, and people are you know they experience something that's terrifying that tends to stick in your brain. So you, it kind of ends up feeding itself where, you know, you're afraid of the next thing happening. So you attract the next thing and then you're afraid of another thing happening. So you attract that one and it just spirals. So, um, you know, this kind of situation goes on you know, regularly with, with a lot of clients. Mm. So George Lutz waking up at 3.15 in the morning on the first night that they're there thinking he's heard knocking sounds and being obsessed with the boathouse and running down there and having to check that everything is okay. Just that one event then feeds him the next night. He's sort of before he goes to bed, he's in the headspace of, I wonder if that's going to happen again. And it does. Sure, exactly. And, you know, the, the, the universe has a, a fantastic way of just of bringing to you exactly 
in situations like this where your focus goes you know is is obviously to the weird thing that just happened to you it's really hard to, sh to shake that and i and i think coupled in this case specifically which which is you is sort of unique but not unique in terms of uh, the world of parapsychology uh, is the fact that you know george lutz it might have been picking up on the activity that had been there prior. And if he's one of those people that is sensitive to those kinds of things, um, you know, is, is sensitive to you know, things like, uh, you know, memory cells when we interact with objects or places or things, um, and we're able to, to basically read it almost like psychometry, uh, pick up images and sounds and sights and things like that. If he's waking up at 3.15 in the morning and, you know, he's obsessed with the boathouse and things like that, I would question whether or not he had a, a bit of medium, uh, medium ability. Mm. George swore to the end of his life that this stuff had really happened. I mean, the first uh, frequently asked question on his website was, uh, I, someone would say, I heard that the Amityville thing was a hoax. And he would say, yeah, I heard that too. It wasn't. So. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and the funny thing is, is that he, he, both he and his wife passed lie detectors, mm -hmm. uh, in regards as, to that as well. He was, he was questioned and both of them passed. Um, you know, and I, I think for me, what's, what strikes me about this, because there's been so much accusation of, of hoax. I know even at one point their attorney came forward and was saying, oh no, we concocted this story because of, a of, mm -hmm. of financial issues. Yep. But these are people, if, if they were in such financial trouble, they dropped every single belonging they had to get out of that house. Yeah. They left and they left everything. And I mean, they were, they were, they were in financial trouble because of the situation that was, that was going on. But I mean, you know, this is a, a really rough way to try and get recover any sort of uh, money or financial gain. And they honestly didn't make that much off of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's really fascinating to uh, to kind of take that sort of thing into consideration. It's like, yeah, if if you are plan like, did they plan out this elaborate hoax that was going to take place in Jay Anson's book that was written, you know, a year later? Um, <laughs> it doesn't make it doesn't make a lot of sense to just drop everything and run with your kids to your sister's your sister's house. Yeah, and this happens so so much in in the world of of the paranormal. You know, I think I think people think that oh, this is you know some rare incident where people are scared out of their houses, but ultimately, you know, this happens and it happens to people. And I think it bothers it bothers people enough uh, that they they can't really relate to it. They they sit back and they go, you know, all that that couldn't have happened. That couldn't be me. Cause it's a terrifying prospect to be, be frightened out of your home by, by something like, like this, um, you know, and to lose that level of control. So, so I kind of wonder whether people's rash try, people trying to rationalize this is it plays a factor here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, what are your thoughts on the ghost Jody that the kids were seeing? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Jody was a, it, not unlike a lot of negative entities that that tend to move into in, into places like this over whatever reason um and one of the things that i've done throughout my career is is study how these things think um these negative entities and they they really aren't people they they kind of exist in their own category the uh, uh there was a, a study done uh, by the, I believe it was the CIA at one point who determined that things like this were actually thought forms that had kind of become conscious. And 
what was inter what's interesting about this for me is you know you've got this entity that has come in picked a target which was the little girl and you know designed sort of designed itself a, a character this Jody the pig and became friends with the little girl which is not uncommon with some of these negative entities they will they will find the easiest target to manipulate and become buddy buddy and once they're able to isolate one person they're able to start manipulating situations and and things that are going on in the house and sort of infiltrate the dynamic so it's not uncommon for for this kind of thing to go on and um you know the fact why it picked the image of the pig i have no idea um, but they've, uh, I've recently actually been working a, a case here in Alberta where we had one that was mimicking one of the, the family's dogs hmm. and all of a sudden they, they had two Shih Tzus and there was a third suddenly running around that looked weird. Um, and they, needless to say, it was, it was this entity that was trying to mimic the, the imagery of this dog. So it's uh, where the pig idea came from. I don't know, but I, I think that's what was going on here. I've noticed in a lot of these cases it's a little girl or a prepubescent girl or a girl who is just coming of age who seems to be affected by these kind of things. And I know there's been a lot of talk around uh, the feminine energy and those kind of things, but um, do, you, do you have any thoughts on that? Statistically, it's actually about 50-50. Okay. Um, I, th I think the, the girls tend to get a little bit more attention press-wise, um, but statistically, uh, it, it's it's usually it's usually about the same. It really has more to do with the the emotional state and functioning of the of the person. Um, the cases that I've dealt with that have been similar to this, where they've involved young kids, there's some sort of a trauma that's going on with them that they're not processing. Um, you know, one of the cases that the the general public will be really familiar with is the one that the the exorcist was based off of mm -hmm. um, which was a, a little boy by the name of Roland Doe and what most people don't realize about that case um, as crazy as that got uh, was the fact that he was suffering the loss of an aunt at the time mm. uh, who was very much in, into spiritualism the fa their family was extremely religious um, so the kid was under a lot of stress a lot of trauma and then boom you've got this sort of explosion of stuff going on around them. So it really has less to do with gender and a little bit more to do with what exactly is going on in that kid's life at the time. Mm. So how much uh, involvement did Ed and Lorraine Warren have in this situation? Are you uh, familiar with any of that? Yeah, the Amityville case, they had a they had a good deal to do with, and which is which is rare for, a, for for them in a lot of areas because the Conjuring movies, for instance, made it out that they were very much involved in these in these cases and, and they really weren't. Um, but the, uh, the the Amityville Horror, they, they came in with uh, another, uh, they, they were consulting with a, a priest by the name of uh, Padre Pio and uh, they were there for quite a while and brought a camera crew with them. And what was interesting to me was less their testimony because the warrants have always been very controversial one way or the other mm -hmm. um but the testimony that got me f with 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 that case specifically was the camera people that they brought with them because they were wartime journalists and these guys had covered the war like they had been in the trenches getting shot at mm -hmm. and it was this case that they turned around and said we'd gladly go back and, and do the war uh, you know, record the war again because they're like this was this was the most terrifying thing we've ever dealt with. Oh wow! Um, and I think that te that testimony I think was what struck me the most. That's fascinating. Um, 
Yeah, well, thank you. That really, we really covered a lot of ground here in the in the few minutes that we've talked. Um, we did. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, what do you have coming up? Do you have anything uh, new on the horizon or something that you're working on? Yeah, well, you know, lots, lots coming up. I mean, with with the shutdowns and stuff, it's it's been tricky. But what I'm what I'm trying to do now is get back into a lot of the uh, the expos that are going to be coming up, the comic expos. I'm uh, bringing some some brand new shows uh, to some of those. Um, I've got a, a live streamed event uh, that's going to be coming up in August called Historically Haunted. Oh, cool. And people are going to be able to buy tickets to that uh, no matter where they are, which is going to be really, really fun. Um, it's going to be super live, interactive, and on site. So, I'm really excited uh, to, to be launching that here coming up, and, and everybody can find all the information for that stuff on entityseeker.ca. Great. And when you're in Vancouver, maybe we'll get together and have that cup of coffee we've talked about a million times. We got to do it. We got to <laughs> do it. It's, it's getting ridiculous. We got to do it. Okie doke. Well, thank you, Morgan Knudsen, for uh, your help with this crazy episode. No, thank you for having me. Great. Again, you can find more about Morgan Knudsen at her website, EntitySeeker.ca. There you'll find links to her social media and more, including archived videos of her spiritual health care video live stream she hosts regularly. Thanks again to Morgan for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with me. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 176, <laughs> Away Game, The DeFeo Family Murders, Horror in Amityville. What are your thoughts on the haunting portion of this story, Matthew? Uh, in your opinion, was this all an elaborate money-making hoax perpetrated <laughs> yes. by the Lutzes? Yes. <laughs> and, or did something really happen? To be clear, come on. It's, um, it was a money-making hoax that started when even the original lawyers were acting like agents, if you know what I mean. Yep. And I think that, um, you know, it's... Uh, you know, I enjoyed this book and this movie as much as everyone else did, mm -hmm. um, but I kind of now feel a little bit dirty for liking it. Oh, really? Why? Because now that I'm older, yeah. right, and I've lost, you are I've lost lots of people yeah. in my life as a view. Like I understand death, and it's essentially a family tragedy was used as a springboard mm -hmm. for this industry. Yeah. Right. And so I'd, I'd really like to go back to reality here and end on this. So this is an article written by Pranjay Gupta for the New York Times who covered everything at the time. Mm -hmm. It's Amityville, Long Island, November 18th, 1974. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is the grandparent. The article ends with, uh, then the six coffins were carried out of the church to waiting hearses and from there to St. Charles Cemetery in nearby Pine Lawn. There, Father McNamara read from the scriptures again as about 300 mourners stood with red carnations in their hand. It was only then that Mr. and Mrs. Michael Brigant, Mrs. DeFeo's parents, broke down. Long after the mourners had gone and the coffins lowered into the ground, a black limousine was still parked in the cemetery. In it was Joseph DeFeo, Mr. DeFeo Sr.'s father. He held a rosary in his hands and kept staring at the graves. So to me, that's the sad sad true end of the story right there's family left behind who yep. had to suffer yeah yeah all these cases that we cover yeah every single one there are human beings left over yeah. unless it's a, a case so historical that everybody has died and we are generations removed yeah. from it 
So I struggle with doing fresher cases for just that reason. And, and, and yeah, exactly. But, and imagine this, this became like, it, it's not just a true crime story. It became this huge like movie empire. And, mm-hmm. and like, there are people, there are family members who like bump into this stuff in, in popular culture all the time. And yep. can you imagine? It's like, oh God, you know, it's just leave it alone. Yeah. There it is again. Yeah. Well, let's leave <sighs> it there and we'll move on to voicemails. Voicemail machine. <laughs> the voicemail machine. The voicemail machine is opening. Yes. So for those of you who don't know, I use a, a virtual service for the phone. I don't have an actual telephone that rings. It's all on my desktop. Oh. Yeah. That's disappointing. I thought like sometimes in the middle of the night you'd hear bring no. and you'd lie in bed going, ah, somebody actually called. Somebody called. No, I get emails. So I okay. do get a message okay. saying that somebody has called and left a message. Mm. But but uh yeah, it's that would drive me insane because there's there's actually a lot of phone calls. Good. Yeah. All right. Let's try this one. Uh it looks like it's from someone named Jordan. Hey Mike and Matt. Let me try this again. <laughs> this is Jordan from New Brunswick. I've been listening since 2019. This show has helped me distract myself on some of my darkest days. I've actually listened to most of your episodes twice. I've wanted to leave a message for quite a while now, but I have phone anxiety. So when I listened to episode 175 today, you suggested writing it out first. So that's what I did. And somehow I still got hung up on the first try. I grew up with the house hippo commercial. Hearing it was like a time machine to the past, like hugging an old favorite blanket. And I really needed that today. It's been a rough couple of weeks. Anyway, thanks for all you do to provide all of us listeners with our favorite comfort food, Dark Chicken. Just wanted to say, go shit in your hat, gentlemen. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> so there you go. Wow, that was great. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. I have phone anxiety too. And the way I got over it was doing this show. Okay. I, I used to not be able to call for a pizza. Calling for a pizza, I felt like I was irritating somebody. Wow. Oh, it was hair. It was horrible, horrifying. I couldn't pick up the phone to call anyone, even a friend. Wow. I still struggle with that. Like, people don't want to hear from me. It's it's this weird thing in my brain hmm. that. Uh, I have no phone anxiety. <laughs> no, I'm well aware. You of know, that. hey, it's me. What you doing? Exactly. <laughs> But uh, yeah, thanks, Jordan. Yeah. Thanks, Jordan. Great. This one looks like it comes from Nova Scotia. Hello there to Mike and Matt. My name is Emily Wilkins, and I just listened to your uh, patron shout out of me, and I died laughing. Um, First of all, I have purple hair, so the purple crossbow is very complimentary. As well as all the video games I play, when you have a choice of your weapon, I like to pick the Archer. So this is just perfect. Not to mention last week, I listened to a podcast by the girls at Morbid who did an episode on the Loop Room not too long ago. So it was just hilariously relevant. I've been wanting to send you this voicemail for quite some time, but I'm very shy, if you can't tell, by my being out of breath. Um, But I listened to the episode about the mass shooting in Nova Scotia back in December, and uh, you guys just did such a good job on that. Um, you and Scott there, Mike. I uh, I was on my floor wrapping presents for my friends and family, and I was just weeping, because <laughs> obviously that 
hit so close to home. And uh, I grew up in Dartmouth. And anyway, it's just, uh, it was all just very overwhelming. And I was thinking about all the people who wouldn't be wrapping presents this year or people who would be wanting to wrap presents for their friends and family who passed. And it's just, I was no good. <laughs> I was on the floor and just wept and had to cry into my cat. So anyway, I felt compelled to send a message after your shout out. So I love everything that you guys do. I'm an avid listener and have been for a while. Shout out to Katie, my friend uh, who turned me on to the podcast. So thank you so, so much. And take a poop in your toque. <laughs> thank you so much, Emily. That's Thanks, uh, Emily. That's fantastic. And and yeah, that's it's kind of not my intent is to have people crying on the floor as they're wrapping Christmas presents. I mean, I'd rather that didn't happen. But hey, well, some of them were just super sad. Like before I was a co-host, I'd cried at a few of them. I cry at a few of them too. Yeah. Yeah. When I'm writing them. All right. Let's get to this one. It looks like it might be from Alberta. Hi, Mike. Um, my name's Laura. I'm calling from Cold Lake, Alberta. I'm originally from Duncan, Vancouver Island. I just finished listening to the murder of Chloe and Aubrey Berry. Um, sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional. Um, I just remember how devastating that was to the community on Vancouver Island. Um, I just finished graduating high school that year and it really shook our community. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for representing their case in such a positive way and we will always remember them. Thank you. Go shit in someone's hat. Bye. <laughs> Well, I'm glad she brought it back to the go shit in your hat after yeah. the emotional. Yeah. Th those, though, this is why these kind of episodes are tough yeah. doing ones that have happened recently and that people remember, uh, it harkens back to what you were talking about in the, in the bulk of the main episode that, Hey, people remember this and we're deeply affected by it. Yeah. So I struggle. I've, I've had a few instances where it's just like, yeah, I don't. Oh no, I don't know if I want to do that. Yeah. Some I have avoided completely. Yeah. So people say, do this one. And it's, the details are horrific. And maybe it's just too raw and too sick. Yeah. yeah. I just don't, I don't think I should touch some. Yeah. And some I've touched, maybe we shouldn't have, yeah. you know? So live and learn. Let's listen to one more. And it sounds like another one from Nova Scotia. So we're back and forth between coasts. Excellent. It's yeah. like ping pong. Exactly. <laughs> Hi, Mike. My name is Jessica and I'm calling from uh, Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia. I've been meaning to call for some time. Um, you were actually the first podcast I ever listened to a couple of years ago. And it was because you did a story on a girl from my hometown and from Pinto County. So the Amber Kerwin case. Um, that's how I stumbled across podcasts and true crime, became addicted very quickly. Um, love the approach you take. You're still my favorite, um, show to listen to. Um, I've listened to everything, so I'm always patiently waiting for the next episode. And I just want to say thank you. Uh, you also kind of ruined other podcasts for me because I realized I can't stand a lot of people's voices. 
And I love yours. And I also love Matthew's. So I really hope that he sticks around. I became a uh, big fan of Matthew early on in the Umbriard, um, and more specifically a fan of Steve. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thank you. I love your show. Don't stop doing what you're doing and wish it your hat. Thank you so much. Thank you. If Matthew wants to stick around, he's welcome to. Yeah, uh, you know, yeah. it's funny, Mike, like there's uh, a lot of podcasts that probably have good content, but I cannot listen to them mm. because the person's voice just drives me crazy. I was so listening. I totally understand. And meditation apps as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like, like, you're listening to meditation and you, like, if you can't, like, the, the voice is just, uh, and you're like, I'm not relaxing here. Yeah. So I totally understand. I listened to one and the voices were fine but they were reading from pieces of paper that they had too close to the Crinkle, mics. crinkle, crinkle. So you could just hear the paper all the time, like, put so, the damn paper down! You know, I've actually listened to this podcast since I started co-hosting because I can't stand the sound of my own voice. Well, your voice is fine. Obviously it is, but, you know, people, like, you're, 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 you are your own worst critic, aren't you? Yes, I definitely am. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it for voicemails. If you want to leave us one, you can do so by calling one 327 5786 or one 877 Yeah, I forgot our PTN. Yeah, I don't call it ever. It's like any phone number. You were like, call one. There's only like three phone numbers that I remember. Right. And they are mom and dad's. Right. Because they've had it ever since... Like ever, the beginning forever. of time, beginning yeah. of time. My grandmother's, oh, and my dad's animal hospital. Those are oh. the only. Yeah, I, I remember my childhood phone number. No, my old best friend's phone number and my grandma's phone number, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's time to move on to Patreon. Patreon shoutouts. The shoutouts from the Patreon. Patreon. Let, let's see if anyone gave us any love. All right, as far as patrons go, uh, we have somebody who is in a place that is very, very hot right now, uh, over in the 40s. What, they're in the studio Celsius. with us? No, they're not in the studio with us. It's very hot here. We're both drenched in sweat. Grand Forks, British Columbia, Laura Beverage. Hello, Laura. And it's beverage. Beverage is spelled a little different than the drink, okay. but, but it still made me think, Wow, I do actually need another like diet root beer or something like that. I actually knew a master distiller whose last name was Beverage. Beverage? Isn't that a perfect name for the job? Right. Yeah. So what does Laura Beverage do there in Grand Forks? I'm going to go with the heat theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is the inventor of the slip and slide. Oh, the slip and slide. They're fun. Wouldn't you love to be in a slip and slide right now? Remember in the, when you're a hot summer day when you're a kid? You yeah. You got slip and slide out there and... Have fun with the friends. I, I like the big, they do the slip and slide down Lonsdale right. Avenue, like the big water slides down the okay. actual hills. Yeah. Well, she invented the slip and slide. Well, there you go. Thanks, yeah. Laura Beverage, keeping everybody cool. Excellent. Yeah. With beverages and slip and slides. <laughs> you have to you have to go down and like hold your drink and not spill it. I was very good at that. Yeah. As sure I was a tippy drunk, I, I tended to fall down a lot, but... Never did I smell, uh, spill or smash a beer. Were you tippy drunk? I was a tippy drunk. Aww, yeah. Alas. Next we have Becky Johnson and Becky is from Yakima, Washington. Hello, Becky. Hello, Becky. 
What does Becky do there in Yakima? Becky is a chemist and she worked on a team with Margaret Thatcher to invent soft ice cream. Margaret Thatcher invented soft ice cream? Yes. Whoa. Well, and I she mean, all, but she the, had the, such a hard edge. There's different stories, but yeah, she worked, she, yeah, she was a chemist before she was prime minister. Ah. Yeah. So anyway, she helped uh, invent soft ice cream. Well, there you go. Yeah. That's kind of cool, actually. Yeah. Um, thanks to Becky and Margaret for doing that for me. <laughs> Keeping us cool. Keeping us cool. Everybody's trying to keep us cool. All right. Well, that's it for patrons. Thank you Thank to you guys. Becky and Laura. Uh, we have some donut money donors here to give shout outs to. And the first one is Michelle Reedner. And Michelle looks like she's from Winnipeg, Manitoba. Excellent. Uh, yeah, Winnipeg. The, the peg. The metropolis of Winnipeg. I like Winnipeg. Yeah. And uh, what does Michelle do there in Winnipeg? She's Matthew? a professional river tuber. Oh, that would be fun. She holds the world record for floating down a river the longest in an inner tube. Well, that might be possible because there's a lot of lakes and stuff in Manitoba and yeah. they're probably all interconnected somehow. Imagine the um, mosquito repellent she would need. Mm, I hear they're like tiger sized. Oh, they're horrible creatures. Yeah. 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 Not good. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. Enjoy <laughs> that tubing. Enjoy your tubing. Next, we have Heather Rajot, and I don't know where Heather is from, but she says, Hi, Mike and friends. Just a note to say thank you for keeping my spirits up on what has been a very trying year. The subject matter may be dark, but your podcast definitely brings some light to my life these days. Also, my last name actually is actually Dresser now since I got married recently. Oh. Much easier to pronounce. So Heather Dresser. Well, there you go. I'm not sure if Matthew is co-hosting with you this week, but if he is, my dog Lana has a message oh, for him. It's... <laughs> she would like him to know what, she would like him to know that she noticed that Steve looks very lonely when Matthew was away for work trips and would be all too happy to keep Steve company until he returns. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> Lana, I love Lana. Well, she is from Guelph, Ontario. And she says that Lana is worth the trip. Thank you for creating this wonderful community. Hope to donate again soon. Well, thank you thank so much, you. Heather. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Lana. Yeah. Lana. Lana. What kind of dog is Lana? Do you know? Same kind as Steve. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, they could make little, little tiny bulldogs. Well, actually, Steve couldn't, could he? Had his balls chopped off. No, he's been, he's been debunked. Uh, I would hate to see him not debunked. He's such a little devil. Oh, yeah. But that's it for our Donut Money donors and our patrons this week. Thank you all to everybody who's contributed, past, present, and future, for your generosity. It helps keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. Or for a one-time donation, you can send us some donut money using PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot. If you did, you can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Don't forget my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem. It's available for pre-order via a link on the Dark Poutine website, or just search for it in Amazon. And speaking of our website, please check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. 
Please take the time to give Dark Teen a like or follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Goodbye, everyone. We're a couple of sweaty apples. (laughs) We are.